Take a network break, pass around the virtual donuts and join us for our weekly excursion through the tech news worth discussing. We're going to talk about new chips for AI interconnects, an update on superconductors, more open source upheavals, a new ploy to get workers back into the office and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. Your branches change, your SD-WAN should too. So join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering the next gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event that shows how next gen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to XD, go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to this free event to see the replay. Uh, if you like Network Break, check out the other podcasts we have at PacketPushers.net. That includes Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, Heavy Strategies, and Kubernetes Unpacked. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at PacketPushers.net. We've got a lot of stuff going on on Packet Pushers, lots of other channels. If you haven't seen them, maybe you should go and do a search for Packet Pushers in your podcatcher and see all the others, or subscribe to the Fat Pipe, which now has... Uh, we did a survey. We asked questions on this show and various things, and... Uh, we now have put all of our fat, all of our channels into the fat pipe, so it's going to be stuffed <laughs> it's, full. It's the full downloads. pipe, and we are not lying; <laughs> it is full. So yes, yes, it is full. Everything goes in there now, so you can see each and every show. Uh, you know, and maybe you've got some more downloads. But we did a survey, and the overwhelming response: three quarters of people said no. The fat pipe should have everything in it. That's what I want to be when I see the full feed. That's what I want to see. Yep. So. Yeah. Yeah, and it includes our newest podcasts, Heavy Wireless and Kubernetes Unpacked, which are, if you're into either of those, uh, could be useful for you. And mine. And of course, my, Heavy Strategy. My heavy yes, strategy. yes. Heavy, come on. <laughs> you don't like me or something? Is this what, what am I hearing here? We, your, your ego's fine. We don't, we can, uh, doesn't need any more stroke. <laughs> hush. Hush. <laughs> but fair. But fair. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> good. But yes, Heavy Strategy, also very good. Uh, lots of good conversation with yeah. you and Jonah Till Johnson, where you take opposing sides of an issue and uh, hash it out. Oh, good. You'll still get paid this week, then. Close one. <laughs> <laughs> Close one, though. <laughs> let's get to let's the news. Let's do it. Right? A company called XCon has announced a new system on a chip, or SOC, designed to support PCIe and Compute Express Link or CXL on a single chip. The company's targeting this SOC for AI and HPC workloads. Yeah, this is a bit of a weird one, and I, d I didn't wasn't sure whether to introduce it or not, but CXL is um, an extension of the PCIe bus, I think is the best way. It's quite a bit different. It does a lot of high things. It's a very high-speed interconnect, largely designed to build rack-scale computing. You know, this idea of disaggregating your servers, so here's a rack of CPUs, here's a rack of memory, here's a rack of disk drives, you know, of a solid-state memory. Let me combine them together in some form that you think is optimal, and then you can just, uh, if you need to scale up your physical capacity, just keep adding modules to the memory and make it available mm -hmm. to the pool. CXL sort of designed to do that, very high-speed interconnect. Um, I think it's capable of running up to 10 meters, but I don't actually know for certain, so don't quote me. PCIe, of course, is the bus that we've seen inside servers for decades. Uh, but that also has an external mode. So you can actually take a PCIe bus and extend it out and connect a range of servers together. And this has been used for multiple things over the years, but it's never never really lasted. It always ended up making more sense um, to be able to just put Ethan in. The network wasn't the bottleneck, as it turned out most of the time, or, uh, or storage would come along, we'd have more storage. So sharing access to storage or sharing storage next didn't make a whole lot of sense. However, with the case of HPC and AI, the game has all changed. You know, we've talked about um, Ultra Ethernet, mm -hmm. um, talking about trying to build a AI network thing that would scale up to a nominal 32,000 node. So that's 32,000 servers in a single cluster. 
Um, NVIDIA today is doing using InfiniBand for a modern size cluster. I believe it's up to a few hundred. And so there's a lot of scope in between those two for a network that scales past InfiniBand, but not necessarily Ethernet, that is better than Ethernet, you know, got better latency, better predictability. We know that Ethernet storage, Ethernet storage really isn't working for a lot of enterprises. So my speculation is that this chip would be targeting AI in the enterprise for a nominal few thousand nodes. And that's probably 90% of companies, not 90% of the value of the market, by the way. All the, most of the AI systems today are going to the off-prem cloud companies who are buying them and paying a premium for them. Yeah, Yeah, I think when we talked to the Ultra Ethernet Consortium, to Jay Metz, he said one of the things that, uh, you know, data scientists and and folks running AI workloads have a problem with is all of the different IOs that you have to push uh, data through. And so uh, it seems like this is uh, along those lines of trying to minimize or at least make more efficient uh, passing data from memory to memory to memory to across different systems that CXL is designed to make that uh, faster and more efficient. Yeah. And more importantly, all of those servers would be on the same bus. So conceptually, all of those resources would be directly available. So instead of having to go, you know, out of the memory into across the NIC, go through the process of, you know, segmentation into networking, this would basically be just a big bus architecture, like a point to point bus architecture that potentially, that's what InfiniBand was offering for a long time. It was kind of this idea that you could, it's more of a direct memory access where you can get between, you know, rear right, right to the memory location of other servers. CXL and PCI, this is only a SOC. Of course, somebody has to now go out and put the SOC on a motherboard or in a PCIe switch or a CXL switch, and then people have to buy that. But we know that customers are out there buying high hyperconverged solutions, what we used to call hyperconverged, and now it's a, an approved system. So you can go to Dell or HPE, and they'll sell you an approved system that is would have this feature. And if you think that HPE is selling uh, you know, AI, and we know Dell's got an AI in its Apex strategy, um, maybe they'll put these chips in there to get a high-speed network for that's enterprise-sized, if that makes sense, rather than going to InfiniBand. Maybe they go for this. Yeah, my impression is that this is very specialized uh, technology for very specialized use cases, and so it's not going to be something hitting that, that the majority of folks mm. are going to be interested in, but for those who need it, they'll be interested. Yeah, I, I can't say it can win. I guess my point here is that, you know, everything ends up being Ethernet, not because Ethernet is good, but at the end of the day, it doesn't lose. Like, Ethernet never wins. It just it's, doesn't it's lose. Cheap and over and time, it's good enough. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, for, for, and then eventually people just work out how to make it work. So, um, you know, it, it, the mediocrity of Ethernet, it's a bit like fossil fuels. We know we shouldn't use it, but we just do. And we always end up coming back to fossil fuels sort of thing. So we'll see how it goes. I, I suspect that the ultra Ethernet will struggle to find a stable, workable. People will give it a go. There'll be problems and then they'll go back to fiber channel. You know, <laughs> so, you know, people still buy billions of dollars worth of fiber channel every year. I think it's a $10 billion market last time I checked. So we work that out. We'll see. Uh, last week, uh, we had talked about uh, some news around superconductors. Uh, a, a university claimed to have developed room temperature uh, superconducting capabilities. And we've, we went into a little bit of uh, some of the efforts by other universities and researchers to, to try to prove that out. And, and you've got some, some follow-up. Yeah, I was mostly wrong. In fact, almost completely wrong. Remember last week I said if superconductors came along, I was uber positive, like not my normal cynical snarking self, which, uh, you know, people have been saying, well, Greg, why are you always cynical and snarky? And the answer is because mostly, as, as I found out, mostly because it's wrong. So I should have been uh, cynical, but here you go. Uh, the story here is that the, 
the basics are that a room temperature and room pressure superconductor reduces the resistance to zero, so the electrons pass along the cable to zero, but what I failed to realize was that capacitance and inductance remains in place. So this is this means that as part of a transistor chip design, uh, the signals have to rise and they have to fall, and capacitance and inductance push back on the rising signal, and then as the signal falls, it, um, ta it stretches it out, and this is what sets the, the limit on how fast a signal can run. The smaller you can make it, the faster you can clock it, because the signals get, you know, at 3.3 at volts, the, the signal's a lot easier mm. to detect. But um, all digital processing is about this rise and fall in voltage, and that you know, waiting for it to dissipate or waiting for it to build up and trigger through the threshold is what you want. And a superconductor will use less heat and power if it's usable in an ASIC. We'll get to that in a minute. And this less power consumption is a good thing, but it won't improve transistor performance. Hence, clock speeds and bandwidth won't be changed much by a superconductor. So, okay, step one, superconductors might take away resistance and hence use less power. That's good, but it doesn't solve any of the other problems that we have in terms of shifting to higher performance or faster switching or, you know, better internal things. So, uh, and in fact, I got into that and it turns out that inside of an ASIC, there's something like, I believe there's up to 350 layers of substrate, you know, of technology inside of an ASIC mm. chip, the little mm. silicon chip that they get, you know, yep. tiny little thing. And generally down the bottom is where they put the transistors and up the top is where they put the power rails. And although the superconductors might be able to use in the power rails, Apparently, the problem is the material that LK99 uses is a copper sulfate. So it's a, as, a, as a metal, it's actually derived from a family of copper sulfates, and that particular material is known to have a very poor capability to pass current. Believe that or not, I couldn't work that out. And apparently it is certain materials don't pass. It's just not enough electrons in the, in the material to pass a high volume of current. And if you're putting a smattering of atoms on something, that's what right. you want, right? Right. So, as a result, the power lines would have to be unfeasibly large, and so then LK99 would not be sufficient for a semiconductor. Um, and then you go on to more practical matters, which I should have realized and should have said, because ASICs are so tiny, you know, they're literally, we're talking down at, you know, three nanometers or something, you're talking about a handful of atoms to, be, uh, to, to form something, you would have to produce this superconductor material at one part per billion priority and at sufficient volume and then you would have to, once you've got the raw material, it would have to be able to be used in a production process based around extreme ultraviolet lithography, which is what uh -huh. we use today, right? So most of that is we turn the metal into a gas and then we deposit it, we charge the thing at deposit, or sometimes they bathe it in a material, sometimes they, you know, there's a whole different way of, a series of ways that EUV works. It's, it's kind of fascinating. But this, you know, basically the research points out that even if we had a material that was a superconductor, the chances of it actually being usable to make ASICs is, is very, very small. So I was a little bit disappointed about that because I'm wrong, but also because the dream of a superconductor silicon is, is some way off. Well, I think that's the thing with these potentially transformative technologies like superconductors. Uh, having a, a small result in the lab does not necessarily immediately translate into, you know, global production and scale. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not often science gets, you know, gets some headlines. Um, I note that a US-based researcher did actually live stream his attempts to make LK99 to literally uh, show that he could, could be made and, and demonstrate what it was able to do. And he was actually able to make a few flakes and they did levitate in a magnetic field. So there's sort of a, a 
there's sort of a, a sense amongst the researchers that this is actually a genuine superconductor that kind of works. It probably works at about minus 100 degrees Celsius, though, operationally. <laughs> you can make a material and do it at room temperature, but its actual optimal temperature is probably down around minus 100 degrees C. And as the process of this looked at it, apparently you need something called red phosphorus to make this LK99, and that is actually a restrict product because apparently it's used to synthesize morphine. Okay. <laughs> so so you can't exactly go out there, although it, you can do it on a, on a lab bench or a kitchen, what they call a kitchen bench. You know, it's going to be difficult to, for people to replicate it. You now have to go and buy a controlled, a rigidly controlled right. substance. Get yes, getting licensed for so, industrial yeah. quantities will will take some time and some investigation. Take yes. some time, yeah. Yes, and there'll be r- rules and restrictions on who can do it. So I think, uh, you know, it's good that there's a superconductor and it shows that room temperature conductors are potentially possible. There seems to be evidence. And I think what we're seeing now is all the scientists have... Um, gone back into the, you know, gone back into the darkness, and they're actually doing the hard work now to try and turn this into something yep. useful. Um, this is your regular reminder that science does not move at the pace of the internet <laughs> or the intention span of a Twitter. Sad account. but true. Sad but true. Yes. Uh, my takeaway is uh, apparently I'm still going to be waiting for my flying car. It's not here yet. Yes. Yes, that is a shame. Or or maglev trains that use almost right. no power. Yep. Either or. Oh, well. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, HashiCorp, they make popular infrastructure automation tools, including Terraform. It's changing its open source license to a business source license, or BSL. The BSL puts restrictions on other companies that build competing products on top of HashiCorp source code. Uh, This is from the blog that HashiCorp put out. Vendors who provide competitive services built on our community products will no longer be able to incorporate future releases, bug fixes, or security patches contributed to our products. Uh, They are concerned about uh, vendors who take advantage of open source uh, software to build competing products. They don't want that to happen anymore. Yeah, I'm sensitive to this. I think there's something here in the sense that I'm not opposed to open source, but I've changed my outlook over the last, you know, two or three years. I think that the, the open source that most of us remember from 15 years ago, which was sort of this utopian nirvana where everybody was contributing to help mm-hmm. everybody else has sort of been well not corrupted by predatory capitalism but it's certainly we've seen lots of problems and as open source projects get ever larger they become less and less viable like could you develop products like HashiCorp and Terraform without a company behind them and if there's a company behind them there's money and where there's money there's people wanting to take that money away or set up competition and we've seen plenty of examples of open source projects where a commercial organization has gone, you mean I can have all of this product for myself and I could just take it and then go and make money out of it just like you are. And we've seen that happen a couple of times. So one of them is, of course, AWS with MongoDB. People were using MongoDB on AWS. AWS went, we want all that money. We don't want to pay MongoDB anything. They just took the whole product and called it DocumentDB and boom, MongoDB is really now struggling to find its way forward. All the years that MongoDB invested, grew the business, found customers, proved out the technology, this whole idea of an object database that they, you know, one of the pioneers of, and all that value was just, well, effectively stolen from them, right? Well, that's where it gets tricky with open source because of, depending on the license, you can't say it was stolen, but um, it, it does, it is kind of a smack in the face for people who are trying to contribute back to the community while also being able to make a profit than to have someone come along and essentially just take all the profit without even giving back to the community, I think is one of the issues. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so another one of these was uh, Netbox. So Jeremy Stretch, for example, I, I've got a link to his blog post where he talks about it. And he says um, he regrets making Netbox open source now because as some of the company, he went to work for a company to help them out on a Netbox project 
and then he left shortly thereafter. They then forked that product and turned it into their own product, basically taking all of the work that he did and setting up directly in competition right. with him. And yet he spent seven years developing that product, building it up into something, and he feels that this is not the way, you know, just being able to take it and fork, you know, walk off with the with the with all the years of effort that he put into it doesn't seem. We also saw uh, Facebook would do it this week with Llama 2 when it, not this week, over the last month or so, they released their LLM language model with a limited open source license. The license is basically you can have it, you can use it, you can do whatever you like with it, but you can't be a big company and then use that product to compete with us. So I think we're sort of seeing the end of open source here. And and I, I, I don't know, Drew, but do you remember when open source came out and then we were always, companies were always saying, well, what we want is we want transparency. We want to know what's happening inside the software. We don't want to buy from vendors and have no visibility, mm-hmm. right? That was one of the things, wasn't it? It, it was one of the things, yeah. And another one was you can you can take the source and maintain it if you have to. So if the company that's selling you the software disappears tomorrow, you can at least take the source and you've got a choice or an option to be able to maintain it yourself until you can walk off with it, right? Now, and three, you can upgrade to commercial support. So the newer spins on open source was that you could take an open source and then get commercial support and version support. You know, they would do the updates for you. You pay them and that sort of thing. And more importantly, open source was a way to onboard a project without a large upfront cost and evaluation and buying. There was never any sort of commitment from capitalist businesses to support the purity of intention that the GPR represents. Right, right. right. So I, I... I sort of feel like this is a recognition that open source has, as a as a concept, has value to businesses. They can buy it, they can play with it, they can work with it, they can incorporate it into other things. But I think you have to realize that, you know, companies like AWS in particular, who has been quite, you know, sharp-nosed business people about this, just taking someone else's work and turning it into their own, I think we have to recognize that that's where we are and we don't want to keep doing that. So HashiCorp is saying... End users can continue to copy, to modify, and redistribute the code for all commercial and non-commercial uses, except we're providing a competitive offering yep. to HashiCorp. Partners can continue to build integrations for our for our joint customers. We'll continue to work closely with cloud service providers to employ deep support. And more importantly, the thing that I took did take a note of, Drew, is HashiCorp APIs, SDKs, and almost all other libraries will remain Mozilla public licensed. So you can continue to use their APIs and SDKs without licensing. And that's important. Yeah, I think two things. HashiCorp is trying to walk a line between um, protecting its own interests and also hoping to continue to foster an open community. So I think that that's sensible. I think the other thing is that the basic flaw in the whole open source movement is, as you said, that someone could just come along, fork it, and build an entirely new business out of it without contributing back to the original community. That's always been there, but Mm. it's the cloud scale and the hyper-cloud providers who have been able to actually execute on that as a business model. Whereas before it would have been harder for me to say, mm-hmm. to fork uh, an open source project, I'd still have to go out and try to get customers and sell it and so on. When I'm you know, a big giant cloud provider who's already got mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of customers baked in, it's a lot easier for me to make that that model work. Yeah, I just add it to the menu, then all of a sudden, I just all I need to do is hire some MongoDB people and boom, I've got a, Mon- I've got a competitive product. Yeah, I think it's the cloud scale that makes open source a little bit uh, harder to pull off, uh, that that community-minded element of it harder to pull off these days. Well, I think also companies didn't contribute to open source, right? You, By and large, corporations thought, it's just free of cost, I'll take sure, it. Sure, that's the other right? problem, yep. Or yeah. People, on the, yeah, people on the ground just said, I can use this to get my job done so I can go home. But I think we also have to realize that in open source terms, technology got a lot more complex. It's the days of, you know, 
a person who built a, uh, some software or a, or a thing on a, on a couple of, and able to maintain it on the occasional weekend to build something that's you know useful at scale. I think that as days are passing, as technology gets more complicated, and we have to also recognize that companies are buying solutions more. So today they buy solutions and they do less self-assembly. Sure. So 20 years ago, you would buy a server and then you'd buy the operating system and then you'd buy the app and then you'd put them all together and then you'd spend time configuring the app, you know, getting the application and building it up and all that. Nowadays, we're much more into the SaaS model and I think that's also yeah. a part of it. But the main thing that I think that we get from Terraform, you know, from HashiCorp and their Terraform products is everything's permissive. Everything's still open. The challenge that I have is when you want to write an API to a to a product. It's like a, you know, there's a lot of vendors you can't use their APIs unless you've got a support account with them, right? Or their product is licensed. And if you want to make an API call, you have to have a registered key to access that. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? That's not open. That's right. closed. Yep. Right. You might call it an open API because it's accessible <laughs> on the internet or whatever. But I want to have all the details of the API. The only time I need a, a key should be for authentication, but I shouldn't have to have a, a developer key to be permitted to access an API. That's where my problem comes in. So at least HashiCorp is saying, we want you to use our product. We're not going to put any barriers in your way. We're not going to forge, force you to register an account like Twitter does now for mm -hmm. their API and, and, just, and then go. So I think they're finding a way in the middle here. Yeah, as and, and as mentioned, as long as you're not trying to build a HashiCorp competitor on top of HashiCorp's own source code, they're they're okay. Worth keeping in mind that HashiCorp is a five point three billion dollar business. So their share price today, although it this goes up and down a fair bit, um, you know, it was up to ten or twelve billion at the a year ago, but today it's a five point three seven billion dollar company on its current market capitalization. And you know, I think you're going to see more of that sort of. They've got so much value; they actually have a shareholder duty to yeah, keep that exactly. going. So HashiCorp is not a small company, and the idea that there's a $5 billion company that's giving away its core value for nothing, it's a little bit hard to understand, especially when you're working in an environment of, you know, AWS, which is a ferocious capitalist, Absolutely. you know, of the most extreme yep. kind. I would certainly, I think we've been lucky to be this long <laughs> at the end of the day. All right. Uh, lots of links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, with a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. Your branches change. Your SD-WAN should too. You can join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering NextGen, SD-WAN, and SASE for the branch. As businesses focus on driving the next growth phase, branch transformation has become a key priority for IT leaders. Critical industries including finance, retail, healthcare, and manufacturing rely on a network of branch offices to serve their customers. This newly established trend of hybrid work, digital-first customers, and accelerated cloud adoption are forcing organizations to rethink their branch IT strategy. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event. You can get the full replay of this event to see how NextGen, SD-WAN, and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to sign up for the replay or get the link in the show notes for Network Break episode 442. All right, a few more stories before we wrap. Uh, speaking of Linux and open source, there's a new Linux in town. Three Red Hat competitors have launched the Open Enterprise Linux Association. The goal of the trade association is, quoting their launch announcement, to provide an open process to access source code that organizations can use to build distributions compatible with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Uh, the founding members are CIQ, Oracle, and SUSE Linux, and this is uh, coming out of that kerfuffle around IBM Red Hat uh, and their stance toward uh, how they're licensing Red Hat these days. Yeah, so this is what I mean about uh, closing up <laughs> right. the open source. So if you start to make it, if you want to use Red Hat, you have to have an account with IBM. Basically, that's the future, right. right? And when you sign up for account, they whack a bunch of terms and conditions on there that restrict what you're allowed to do with the product. 
going forward. So it won't be too long before the Red Hat documentation delivers, you know, fades away behind a registration wall. You might be able to access it for free, but you still have to have an account or something like that, like what you already see with a lot of technology vendors. Uh, so CIQ, just in case you didn't know who they are, they're the organization behind Rocky Linux, and they've been maintaining a Red Hat compatible distribution for a while. So what I think is happening here as best as I can read into it, is, of course, Oracle, SUSE, and CIQ see an opportunity to take customers away from yep. IBM. And following their, you know, they're attempting to corral customers into an IBM proprietary environment or an enclosed environment. It's full of open source, sure. But, you know, they want you to be in there and they want you to, they want to have you there and then they want to send their sales reps in, put professional services inside of your organization and capture more of the budget. That's the typical IBM playbook. You trap customers into a technology, you land and expand with professional services, and then you leverage the professional services to take over the IT budget. In fact, in a perfect world, the customer would actually just outsource their whole IT to IBM. That's fairly common. Lots of customers very believe that IBM is a very valued partner in that sense. But I also note that both Oracle and SUSE announced their intention to build a Red Hat compatible yep. distribution. We talked about that ago. three yeah. or four weeks yeah. ago, I think. We did. Yeah. So what I think is happening is these three organizations seem to be, we'll share resources to build a, a compatible distribution. And rather than have four versions of you know a Red Hat compatible distribution, we're just going to have two. So they may brand it and provide their own support or you know whatever, but all of these three will come together to produce one combined or shared capability. That sounds efficient to me if you look at it like that. Sure, and it's going to be called Enterprise Linux. Uh, the association is going to provide an open and free Enterprise Linux source code. That's that's worth their banding together to do. And I assume, yes, they will have different uh, support options uh, around that uh, because, of course, they still want to make money out of it. But they say it will be... Uh, well, you know, I, reading the, the announcement, I didn't really see anything about it actually being open source or what license it would be under. Maybe those details are still mm -hmm. being worked out. Um, but certainly... Suse, yeah. Oracle, and, and CIQ see an opportunity to, to, to wrest some business potentially from Red Hat. And the questions in my mind are, are enterprises willing to give up RHEL and go right. somewhere else? Does this represent a moment? Because there was, you would remember this because you've been in the, in the industry for decades, <laughs> um, there was a large movement to get away from IBM for a long time there. And the question in my mind is, if IBM's going to do this, do CIOs and executives go, oh, this is a new IBM, I should try them again and have customers forgotten what it was like to be an IBM account. Like, so for those people who were uh -huh. burned, have they all retired? Like, right, right, right. Is there <laughs> they forgot the pain. You know, right. like, have they, yes. yeah. It's not dissimilar to the way IBM has worked in its business model for a very long time. This is a very IBM thing. Trap customers in, inside a golden wall and then squeeze until you, you know, until the juice comes out sort of thing. And before there was Oracle, there was IBM. People wanted to, you know, get away from IBM as far as possible because they felt trapped and exploited to some extent. Like that, many people do the same thing with Oracle today, feeling that Oracle tends to be in control of them, their, their business themselves, too much. So it'll be interesting to see if there's if this sort of thing can work, whether there's enough resistance to IBM, and whether the alternative is viable. Yeah, if I was trying to escape IBM because of the pain and I was running toward Oracle, I would rethink that decision unless maybe I secretly like the pain because you're just going to get a different flavor from Oracle. Um, I also, am I wrong to worry about SUSE Linux getting into bed with Oracle? I feel like it's kind of like watching a nun and a, and a Wall Street trader do a handshake deal not to sell the orphanage. Like I, SUSE Linux does not strike <laughs> me as a compatible business partner with Oracle. Yeah, well, you know, viable. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you. Sure, I'm not going to argue with you. I mean, it does... SUSE Linux is now part of SAP. Ah, uh, okay. 
Uh, so it was acquired by, you know, um, them some time back. And basically it became like a distribution that they could run SAP on. And it's, it's got its own customer base and everything. Very popular. Yeah, I just, I, I, I've I spoken to folks yeah. from Suse Linux and I just sort of had this mental image of them as sort of this, you know, nice, friendly, polite, open source company in Europe. And, and so partnering up with Oracle is not, to me, a natural affinity. But if they're owned by SAP, then maybe they're a little more sharp-elbowed than I anticipated. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would imagine that SAP and Oracle don't want to be beholden to IBM. Of course not. No. In the substrate. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a convergence of interest and maybe they'll actually yes. put money in it. So we'll see. All right. A couple more stories before we wrap. Uh, Fortinet has announced new firewalls in its 90G series for branches and smaller remote sites. These firewalls are the first in Fortinet's portfolio to feature the latest version of Fortinet's custom security processing ASIC, which it calls the 40SP5. The SP5 was announced back in February 2023. Bigger firewalls. People still want them, yep. right? And there's, yep. uh, they just need more performance. They want to put multiple gigabits of stuff through them. And so Fortinet is making... I did a quick look into Fortinet's financial results, and they talked about um, there is sufficient demand for this for them to keep manufacturing or iterating on the ASICs and sufficient uh, and manufacturing products that people are saying, I want more throughput. So for those of you who want that, here it is. Well, I, mean, I will say it's interesting that... that, that for for debuting your brand new security ASIC, this is one of the smaller models they could put it in because if you're running it in a next-gen firewall mode, you're only getting 2.5 gigabits per second of throughput. So it's not a monster box. They definitely yeah. have bigger ones in their portfolio. So it's kind of a strange one for them to debut this, this new security ASIC. But mm. they are definitely, I think, I mean, they've always been... That's been their competitive differentiator. We build mm. our own ASICs, we, we, and that gives us a performance advantage over all our competitors. And in a box world, that makes sense. In a, in a sassy world, maybe less, but mm. that's something we're about, I think, in the future. Maybe they're just introducing it at the bottom end and the, the bigger boxes will take a while to come to market. Like there's still a backlog in the mm -hmm. supply chain mm -hmm. in places, and maybe it's just a simple supply chain issue. I don't think uh, Fortinet would be waiting, you know, building from the bottom up mostly we see companies build from the top down. They would, if there's limited supply, they'd go from the top down if they could sell the biggest yep. units rather than sell the right, cheaper right. units. It's, it's interesting. It's not, it's not smart business. Yeah. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, Caltech, that's a prestigious technical university here in the US, has reportedly reached a settlement with Broadcom over claims that Broadcom infringed on Caltech patents. Uh, Caltech sued both Broadcom and Apple several years ago claiming that Broadcom Wi-Fi chips and Apple phones, tablets, and other de devices used infringing technology. And Caltech actually won a billion-dollar judgment against the two companies back in 2020, and then an appeals court threw out that amount for being, according to Reuters, quote, legally unsupportable. Uh, so it, the, that's the, how much they're going to get paid is still ongoing, and now it sounds like a settlement may be on the table. Uh, there's no word if Apple is also part of that settlement or if it's just with Broadcom. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I always note how long these legal cases take. Like this has taken seven or eight years yeah. to get this far. Taking a while. And, you know, there's been a judgment and then there's been an appeals and now there's a settlement. Uh, legally unsupportable suggests that, you know, the original jury ordered Apple to pay $837 million and Broadcom to pay $270 million. So that's, you know, $1.1 billion, mm -hmm. dollars, mm -hmm. give or take. So maybe you end up saying, all right, we'll just take an off. You know, they may, they took a lower offer. If the, if the deal is legally unsupportable, how much longer are we going to keep going at this? All right, right. we'll take the offer. Well, right. we got, um, Caltech just got richer. In theory, maybe they did some science or something that made that justified this. It's not just a, a straight up uh, uh, patent trolling thing. I hope so. Yeah, I don't get the sense that Caltech is a, is a patent troll, but I'm sure they've got an interesting uh, intellectual property portfolio that they can leverage in cases like this. And also another reminder that... Yeah. <laughs> 
IP is a landmine, an absolute landmine. I'm glad I don't have to live in that world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, our last story for the day, and it's in our baby comeback file. Uh, Google's offering employees the, quote, opportunity to spend $99 to stay overnight in an on-campus hotel at Google's Mountain View campus. The idea is that it would make it easier and more pleasant to get to work the next day if you stayed in the hotel overnight. You know, this. <laughs> I guess at least some part of Google wants people to come back in the office. I'll bet this is not a blanket thing, although probably from the top down, they probably think that there's, you know, there's all sorts of consultants out there saying the old ways are the good ways. And we're seeing a lot of research papers come out saying distributed work doesn't work or remote work doesn't work. But that's obviously false. There's plenty of people out there doing it. Yes, don't talk about it or write research papers about it, right? So I think at least some part of Google wants people to come back to the office, and I believe that these policies are a group of people who haven't yet adapted to distributed work. Like if you were, had spent a million dollars buying a property in San Francisco, you'd want people to come to the office because that's what you did, right? Imagine if you're sitting on some vastly overpriced piece of real estate and you're committed to it. Maybe you want to torment everybody else by make, making them work hard to go through the same thing that you went through. Um, but it only lasts till September 30th. Oh, to- dear. So if you're going to stay in Google's hotel, that's a bummer. You've only got a few more. He only got three weeks before the <laughs> offer ends, and we've got no idea what's going to happen after that. I just the thing that struck me about this is this feels like a return to the 1700s and the 1800s. Do you remember when uh, in in the early days of capitalism when they started to move people off the land and into the towns, they realised that there was no houses for people to live in, and so people stopped coming to the towns because they were so mm-hmm. awful, and companies then started building buildings. So if you go to various towns in England, you will find workers' cottages, huge rows of what they call the rows, where just tiny little houses, just big enough for a worker, his wife, and Mm -hmm. some children. They're all jammed together, really cheap housing. It really feels like that. It really feels like a return to the 1800s. There is something to that. Back here in the US, like in coal mining towns, they would have, uh, you'd work on the job, and then the only place you could buy food and stuff was at the company store, so you ended up giving back a lot of your salary (laughs) to the company anyway, and it does (laughs) feel like this, because it's not like Google's providing the hotel accommodations to their workers for free. You have to pay for it out of your own pocket. It's it's your 99 bucks to spend (laughs) the night, (laughs) essentially at work. So, wow. (laughs) 3,300 bucks a month to come to work? That's... That's, uh, do you know, like that's that's gonna that's that gonna help. like a bit of you a know? slap in the face. I just I also wonder, do you think they converted some unused offices into a hotel as well, or do you think they're just using? No, hotels? I guess it's a hotel that they purpose built on the yeah. campus. I assume because back in the day, you would get lots of you know executives from other companies flying in, and they wouldn't want a convenient place to stay. That's my assumption. Um, so I do think it's an actual hotel. Uh, well, I've stayed in hotels. I've stayed in hotels that were ex corporate. Mm-hmm. So back in the sixties and seventies, when com- people. A lot of companies actually went and bought land and built, you know, instead of going to a convention center, they actually would buy um, training facilities and then have a hotel attached to it. And then people would fly in their staff for management training. Remember in the old days when managers yes. got trained? Maybe. Yes. yes, right? So before you could be appointed to middle manager, you had to right. go off to the head office to yes, be to trained, get the training. right? They would have hotels associated with that. Um, and there's multi- I've stayed in multiples of those, especially in the UK, like... Uh, the one I'm thinking of at the top of my mind was the Civil Service Academy, which is out near Heathrow Airport. And they had a hotel which could sleep up to 800. And it was basically each one was just a single bed with a desk. <laughs> and people would come from all over the country to do their civil service exams. And then they could return and take up their promotions or their positions within the civil service. So, okay. yeah, it really feels like, you know, let's go back to the 1960s or even further back to the 17 Company and 1800s. Towns. Company towns. I just, 
uh, company tales. That's uh, what I want to note. Uh, yeah. This this is coming from a story in CNBC. Google's description of the offer reads in part, you know, to stay at this hotel. Just imagine no commute to the office in the morning, and instead you could have an extra hour of sleep and less friction. Uh, yeah, that's called working from home. <laughs> it's right in the description. Right? <laughs> Come on, guys, think about it for a second. <laughs> Just there's so much wrong with the whole thing. Anyway, well, well done, uh, Google. Well done. Yes. All right, that wraps up the news portion. We don't have a, a tech bites today, so we'll we'll leave you this. Uh, Greg, if folks are interested in finding you online, uh, where are you these days? I'm uh, increasingly moving over to LinkedIn. I'm finding Twitter to be. I'm still there. I'm still putting stuff out there, but increasingly uh, doubling it up to LinkedIn. I'm finding LinkedIn more interesting. Uh, still haven't quite worked out how to find signal in the noise of LinkedIn. It's still a trash mm-hmm. fire. I am tired of people, self-help gurus and management experts and, you know. <laughs> right, yes. But uh, I I will persevere and hopefully I'll find some signal in the trash fire of LinkedIn. Yes, we'll LinkedIn see. is definitely the khaki trousers of the social media set. Uh, very dull. Uh, oh, another, if I see another, I'm validating my something something <laughs> or I've just taken a new job, something something, I'll yes. go nuts. When you have like several thousand people. Yeah, do, <laughs> everybody doing it is, is a lot, but. Uh, yeah. It gets a yeah, I'm also rethinking my relationship with social media, but I'm I'm still on uh, Twitter. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn and Mastodon if you want to find me there, but and always blogging at packetpushers.net. Uh, thanks to our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks, and thanks to you for joining us for another episode of Network Break. If you like the show, uh, give us a like uh, on Apple Podcasts or hear us on Spotify. As always, thanks for listening.